Okay, if you're taking notes, I have the crowns. Forgive me for being caught by surprise there. Um, I'll just say these for the tape, and then um, anybody that wants to jot them down. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 is the crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 is the crown of rejoicing. 2 Timothy 4.8 is the crown of righteousness. James 1.12 is the crown of life, as well as Revelation 2. I believe it's Revelation 2.10. It's right there in that context. So James 1.12, Revelation 2.10. And then um, 1 Peter 5.4 is the crown of glory, which is the shepherd's crown. And then the imperishable crown is 1 Corinthians 9. Do you want me to repeat those? Okay, okay. First um, Thessalonians 2.19 is the crown of rejoicing or the soul winner's crown. That's First Thessalonians 2.19. Second Timothy 4.8 is the crown of righteousness. That's for those that love his appearing. And then James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10 are the crown of life. 1 Peter 5.4 is the crown of glory. And then the, the imperishable crown, however you take it, that's 1 Corinthians 9. And I think it's right in there, like 24 to 27, something like that. That's the one that we actually read. Okay. So message number one was an overview of the judgment seat of Christ. Message number two, if you like sermon titles, is misconceptions of the judgment seat of Christ. And we're just going to have three common misconceptions of the judgment seat of Christ. I will be shocked if some of these misconceptions are not held in this room. I think they're fairly common. Um, and I think if you study the scripture out on this topic, you find that they're, actually, they're not so. Um, so we'll just look at those, um, because if we're going to properly live our life, um, we want to properly understand the Word of God. In fact, that is a huge theme of the pastoral epistles, that healthy doctrine leads to healthy living. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. So we have to understand these things correctly. So let's go, if you would, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a text that we read before, and we're just going to dwell a little bit more on it here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse number 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Now, the, the misconception, number one, would be this, that it is not a big deal, that it is not a serious review. Aren't we all forgiven anyways? This would be a misconception, that the judgment seat of Christ is not a big deal, that it's not a serious review. Aren't we all forgiven anyways? 
You hear, these are things you hear people say. And I just want to contrast that with what the Apostle Paul says and how he thinks of the judgment seat. Now, I already talked about this, so I won't dwell on this part. But therefore, we make it our aim, our goal, our ambition, our focal point, that which we are driving for, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. In context, that means that whether you are glorified with Christ or whether you are still here on this earth, your goal is to be well-pleasing to him. Do you think when you're glorified with Christ that you're going to want to please him? Do you look forward to longing to please him with an unsinning heart? Do you look forward to that? Never failing him again? That'll be a joy, won't it? And the Apostle Paul says, whether present or absent, our goal is the same, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? Why would he have that goal? Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Notice it's directly proportionate. Whatever you have done in the body, that is what is going to be seen at the judgment seat of Christ, good or bad. So we're going to receive from the Lord as a result of the things done in the body according to what we have done whether good or bad. Now, this is Paul's conclusion. Conclusion, excuse me. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. And I just want to highlight that word terror. When the Apostle Paul thought of the judgment seat of Christ, one aspect of what he presented was the terror of the Lord. And as a result of knowing the terror of the Lord, this is not in context the terror of eternal judgment or eternal fire. This is the terror of standing before Christ and giving an account, of knowing that people make choices that determine what the judgment seat will be to them, a time of sorrow or a time of great rejoicing. And it even gets more and more um, important. I'm, I'm leaving things out just for sake of time that are... it's. I'll just we'll get there in just a, in a few points um, the terror of the Lord we persuade men I have the privilege of going around mostly North America some beyond but I have the privilege of traveling amongst God's people and um, begging them to go on in the things of Jesus Christ um, uh, particularly I think of young people at, at youth camps at teen camps and you plead with them to go on for Jesus Christ and you do this work long enough and you realize that a good number of them don't go on in the things of God. You can look at groups of young people, which I sometimes do, and say statistically 10 years from now, 50% of your lives are going to be a disaster of sin. Some of you will come back from that. Some of you never will come back from that. Now, we don't have a God of statistics. We have a God who's faithful and always there. And yet you do this long enough and you observe these trends are obvious. It breaks my heart. The Apostle Paul here is pleading with the Corinthian Christians to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus in everything. And then he gives them a reason to be pleasing. You're going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. And he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There's a girl that I had the privilege of leading to Christ. Um, I'll give you her first name. Her first name's Gloria. She came to camp. She was one of two kids at a youth camp that didn't know the Lord. Out of like 80 kids, uh, there were two there that we knew of that, that didn't know the Lord. And on Wednesday, she came up and she had 
just question after question. And I didn't know at that point that she didn't know the Lord, but she just kept asking these questions. And, and I so, I'm so thankful for the help of the omnipotent spirit of God in these kind of situations. Like you just start getting this sense, right? And then you start asking her questions and you realize this girl is not saved. And then you, you say, boy, that's a good question. And you, you, know, you give her an answer from the scripture, but then she jumps in with another question and, and you, say, you say, let me ask you a question. And you start walking through the gospel with them and you get to the point, I can still picture her face. You get to the point where you, you say, um, you say uh, do you recognize that you're a sinner? And then this 19 year old girl starts to cry. And she said, yeah, I recognize that I'm a sinner. Do you recognize that, that what God does to sinners? Yes. Do you know, like if you breathe the last right now, do you know where you'd go? Yes. Does that trouble you? Yes. And then I personally, I love it when they, when they do this. I know people are different in this way. But I asked her, do you want to be saved? And do you want to pray? And she told me, and I love this. Um, she said, I really want to go off and spend time with the Lord by myself. And I like that personally. This is them and the Lord. And, um, and so she went off by herself, and she was saved. And to this date, um, I have no doubt that she was saved. Her life was radically changed. Um, she's got a rough go. Uh, she was booted out of her house by her Catholic mother because she wanted to be baptized. Um, it's been tough. She went several years down the road, and, um, and then I noticed on her Facebook, her profile picture, and she's standing there with this huge thing of beer, right? Now, we could stand and debate alcohol from the scriptures if you want. You know, I have no interest in that, especially for the context of today. But I just noticed this, right? And then I'm watching, and I notice other pictures that look like parties, right? And I'm just watching, like, from a distance, this my daughter in the faith, you know, that I live thousands and thousands of miles away from. And then pretty soon I ask a Christian about them, and they say, yeah, we just don't hardly see her. And it just becomes more and more clear, like this person's not doing well. Um, they get swept away into all different kinds of things. And um, this is my daughter in the faith, and she's not, she's not running, right? And so when Paul says, uh, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, um, we beg people to recognize the truth of the scriptures. We beg people to follow after Jesus Christ, but not everybody does, do they? Now, a good number do. Praise God, a good number do, by the grace of God. But not everybody. And that's what Paul is saying. Um, we could not overemphasize today the importance of the things that Paul is presenting, the judgment seat of Christ. We literally should live every day for the rest of our Christian lives in light of the judgment seat of Christ and for the judgment seat of Christ, the day that we will give an account to Jesus Christ. When a group of people say, hey, we're going to go do this. These are usually young people. Hey, we're going to go do this. Do you want to come? You should immediately think of the judgment seat of Christ. And maybe in light of the judgment seat, the answer would be yes. Maybe in light of the judgment seat, the answer would be no. First Christian I ever met that didn't watch R-rated movies was my friend Dan Williams. I named my son after Dan, Daniel William DeGroff. I grew up in a family. We watched everything. We watched R-rated Rambo when I was in third grade with our local church. Right? And we just, we just watched all these things. And to be quite forward with you, I can still picture the inappropriate scenes. You put those things in your head, they don't go away. Right? And so I, as a freshman in high school, I run into this Dan Williams. And, um, and our group uh, says, hey, we're going to go watch this movie. 
And, and I, said, I smiled and said, you coming? And he's like, no, no, you, you guys go ahead. I said, oh, come on. You should come. We're all going. He's, no, 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 no. You guys. I said, why aren't you going? He said, I, I don't watch R-rated movies. That wasn't his only standard, by the way. Sometimes PG-13 are more vile than R, right? I mean, that's not his only standard, but that was one standard that he had. And, uh, and I sat there thinking, and I thought, that standard's better than mine. I'm going to go with his. And uh, so instead of going with them, I went with him, right? I have all of that filth that is not in my head because I developed a best friend who, who was solid and who had standards, right? And it's just a simple choice. All of those things, like it's so practical, the things that we're talking about. We could not overemphasize the importance of these things or the applications of these things. Now, to that end, um, application number one, all through the scriptures, the living God judges justified sinners. People think, I'm forgiven. And what they're saying by that is, I'm never going to be judged, right? No, I'm forgiven. I rejoice in the forgiveness of God. What a great topic. But that does not negate the, thing that, the things that Paul is presenting. The living God judges justified sinners. Uh, King David was clearly judged for his sin. Clearly judged. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a forgiven man. I love his psalms. I love his life. I mean, he was an admirable man. I look forward to meeting him someday, very literally. But boy, you look at the consequences of sin in his life and the judgment of God. That little baby that died and his sons, one son murdered the other son. The lack of peace. I mean, the, God judged David for his sin. And then you might say, well, that was a different dispensation. Well, Ananias and Sapphira instantly judged for their sin, right? Instantly judged for their sin. Uh, the believers in Corinth, right? You could say, well, Acts is a transitional book, right? Transitioning from a different, a different dispensation to a modern dispensation of grace. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, many, I love that Greek word, many. Um, it means sufficient enough. It's enough. Are weak and sick among you and many sleep. They're judged because of sin, because they're eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in an improper way. They're judged because of their sin. You cannot come to any other conclusion in that passage than there was weakness and sickness amongst the people of God, and some people had physically died. Their lives had been taken because of the judgment of the living God. And so I'm just underscoring the idea that biblically, the living God does judge justified sinners. Now, uh, application number two, we should not think that every Christian will do well at the judgment seat of Christ. It would not be a biblical thought to think that every Christian will do well at the judgment seat of Christ. Some will suffer serious loss, shame, etc. Now, I stole this from a guy named Howie Hendricks. I don't know if you know that name or not. Um, but, but he um, says in this little devotional blurb, um, he says, if you make a case study of characters in Scripture... What you find is there are enough characters in Scripture that you actually can see a good window of their life, that you can actually do a character study of them. You have about 100 characters in Scripture. This is according to Howie Hendricks. Um, I don't mean 100 names, but actual lives. And he said of those people in the Scripture that were pursuing the Lord, those 100 people, about a third of them ended well, ended their lives well. That's striking, isn't it? So it's actually more common not to end well 
then it's common to end well. William McDonald, before he was promoted to glory, he said every decade that went by, he equated life's high, life, life to a highway. And he said every decade that went by, there were more Christians that had either gotten in some horrible accident and they were sitting in just in a destroyed vehicle off to the side of the road, bloodied or whatever, like there'd been some calamity in their life and they're just sitting there. Or he said more every decade that went by, there were more and more Christians that had just pulled off beside the side of the road, put out a picnic blanket, and they were just sitting there enjoying themselves, waiting for Jesus Christ to come back or waiting to die. He said every decade that went by, there were more and more people that were not enduring and pressing on all the way to the end. Well, the judgment seat, there's a specific crown for those that endure faithfully all the way to the end. We should not think that every Christian will do well at the judgment seat of Christ. And then application number three. Biblically, there are degrees of hell and degrees of heaven. And I'll say that a little more specifically. Um, There are levels of punishment in hell just as there are levels of reward in heaven. Heaven is wonderful and unimaginably beautiful your experience of it can go up as your reward goes up hell is unimaginably awful and when a person sins before god the weight of their sin grows and the extent of their punishment grows is this a new concept i i don't i um go to matthew chapter 11 if you would This is such a serious concept in the scriptures. From the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Matthew chapter 11. In verse number 20. Matthew 11 verse 20 says this. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, just simply from God's word, it will be worse for some in the day of judgment than it will be for others. The principle is clear that the amount of light that you've received goes with accountability. If you reject greater light, you are more accountable and the punishment will be, will be greater. The practical application is this. If you're outside of Christ today, or if you know people right out there that are outside of Christ, every time they sin, the, the weight of their debt before the living God grows. That's a terrifying thing, isn't it? On Monday night, the people that, that by God's grace, we seek to reach with the truth of Jesus Christ. Did they sin this last week? Will they sin this next week if the Lord grants them life? Every time they sin, the weight of their debt and the weight of their offense grows. And if they don't come into the application of the, the atonement, if they don't come into the application of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sins, 
then they stand guilty in their sin before God. So heaven is a perfect place, and reward can grow and grow and grow depending on your choices. Hell is an unimaginably awful place, and it gets worse and worse and worse depending on the debt of, the debt of sin. From the lips of Jesus Christ himself, it will be worse for those people in the day of judgment than it will be for you. So all of this is just simply to make a case that against this thought that, that the judgment seat of Christ is not a big deal. It's not a serious review. Aren't we all forgiven anyways? Now, that brings us to point number two. Uh, misconception number two is this. Our post-salvation works have no merit before God. This is a misconception that our post-salvation works, I'm trying to be very specific, have no merit before God. So I'll ask it this way. Do our post-salvation works have merit before God? Yes, they do. Absolutely, they do. Now, I'm going to be quick to say this. The only reason they have merit before God is because of Jesus Christ and his grace, right? Absolutely, right? It's not that we can trade God for things. You know, we've done this, and so we've come to twist your arm and make you now do this. Um, of course, it's not that way. The only reason is the grace of God. But if you really properly understand the Lord's teaching, then they do have merit before God. In fact, let's look at it. Luke chapter 14, if you would. Luke chapter 14 and verse number 14. Luke chapter 14, verse number 14. Now we're going to talk more about this, Lord willing, tomorrow at noon. And so I'm just going to introduce the idea in its seed form here. And then we'll expand upon it greatly. Luke 14, 14 says this. And you will be blessed... Uh, let's read the context. Verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. By the way, that's where I would put the timing of the Bema. If you're wondering about that, the timing of the Bema would be at the resurrection of the just. It's post-rapture, post-resurrection of the just, pre-tribulation, pre-millennium. Does that make sense? Or during, I, actually, I should be more specific. Post-rapture, pre-millennium. It's somewhere in that time frame that we will stand. The church will stand before Christ and give an account. Mm -hmm. that's going on? That, yes, that that's what I would see it. Yep, yep, absolutely. Now, the thing I really want to highlight right here is the idea that Jesus Christ did not pull back from the idea of repayment. Do you see that? This is so important. We should just be thinking like good business people. What is going to give us a return on our investment? Now, this comes from a son that deeply loves his father, like I already told you, right? That I love my father. I can't wait to see him again. What my dad was wrestling with was he had invested in something that had no repayment in eternity. And what he regretted was spending that time. And I'm only saying that because we that are alive and remain, we can make other choices than that, right? 
And nothing would make my dad happier than for every one of us to do well at the judgment seat of Christ. So Jesus Christ did not pull back from the idea of repayment. Repayment for good works is a biblical concept. Post-salvation good works. Now, we would all, I trust, embrace the fact that good works mean nothing before you're saved, right? The scripture is abundantly clear about that. For by grace are you saved through faith. It uses phrases like, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Okay, Matthew 19, if you would. Matthew 19. I think this just gets better and better. That was a shock to me, by the way, that Jesus Christ did not pull back from the idea of the repayment of his followers. That was a shock to me when I realized that. I mean, I don't know how many times I've read that, but then I realized, wow, he is teaching the repayment of works for him, right? And he does it in multiple places. Uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 22, this passage I love. Um, Verse 22, this is what we commonly refer to as the rich young ruler. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, I only read that just for context. And so you've got this rich young ruler, as we call him. He comes up to Christ and he says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The Lord Jesus is having a good gospel day here. Uh, He was not off his game at all. And he gives him just the perfect answer, uh, the perfect gospel answer. Uh, here in this text uh, the rich young ruler does not want to go down that road with Jesus Christ he chooses riches over Christ millions of Americans do this and then he walks away sorrowful because he had great possessions now the disciples have seen this and so the disciples now look at Jesus Christ having just watched somebody choose riches over Christ and they say this in verse number 27 I love this verse number 27 Uh, Sorry, let's go 24 for context. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. That's not the passage. Forgive me. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Okay, forgive me. New Bible. (laughs) Breaking in a new Bible. Okay, Matthew 19, uh, verse number 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Please don't let my bad homiletics distract from the point. I mean this, right? Um, The rich young ruler chooses riches over Christ. He walks away. The disciples see that. Peter then says says to the Lord, see, we have left everything and followed you. What shall we have? Now, how would you expect the Lord Jesus to respond to a question like that? Let's see how he does respond. So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What I want to highlight is that everyone, everyone who leaves houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands for his sake receives a hundredfold. 
And so if it was selfish to think of rewards as a proper motivation for serving the Lord, this would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to look at Peter and once again, poor Peter, right? Once again, say, right? You're not thinking right. You're thinking selfish, right? Now, sometimes Christians will think, shouldn't we only serve the Lord out of love? Shouldn't that be the only motivation to serve the Lord? If that was true, the Lord could have easily, as a wise teacher in this passage, turned to Peter and said, am I not enough? But he said to Peter, if I was going to put this in my words, he said to Peter, it is going to be so worth it, Peter. You just watch somebody walk away and choose riches over me. You left everything for me. You're going to receive a hundredfold on your, on your return, on your reward, right? It's, it, this is such an essential passage for understanding the mind of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to highlight one little thing here. It specifically and methodically walks through family, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children. Sometimes children is the toughest one. And then it says lands, right? So houses is thrown in there, lands is thrown in there, but then it specifically methodically brings up the idea of leaving family for Christ. I'm highlighting this because some Christians have to do this. Some Christians have to choose, is it going to be Christ or is it going to be family? And I'll go ahead and tell you that when I went to Bible college, that was the first time that I ever even uh, systematically read this book. And by far, it was the first time that I ever did anything like study of this, of this book. Now, I was serious about serving the Lord in high school, and I was serious that I very much loved the Lord, but I barely picked up this book in high school. So I started studying this book. And I started to realize little by little that my family did not match up with, with this book. And that troubled me. Um, I love my family. And it just troubled me. And I, I eventually came to the conclusion that at best I was raised in a mediocre Christian family. Um, now the Lord knows that I love my family and he knows I'm not throwing rocks at them. Um, I'm just telling you this is the simple truth. I realized we were at best a mediocre Christian family. In fact, if you're going to use biblical language to describe it, we were characterized um, like in Titus 2. It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What I realized, I don't, I don't think I even knew those words when I was 18, 19, 20. What I realized is that our family was characterized by ungodliness. That's a lack of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And worldly lusts is earthbound desires. We were saved people. And we had a measure of love for Jesus Christ. But we were basically living for this world. And I realized that. And little by little, I started to, I would talk to my dad once a week, usually for at least an hour on the phone. And we would just talk about these things, all this. This all came to a head when... Um, Two of my siblings, uh, there are four of us, two of them um, turned out alcoholics, uh, broke my dad's heart. He couldn't believe it. Um, and um, one of them chose a lifestyle of sin. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, I sat, just he and I, and, and with tears, I begged him to repent. And I wasn't even talking about alcohol or anything like that. I, w I was just talking about his lifestyle of sin, his deliberate choice of a lifestyle of sin, spitting in the face of Jesus Christ. And I just begged him, pleaded with him to repent. He knew what was right. And he left that little get-together. We talked for hours. Um, seemingly, I mean, I was a little bit hopeful. He went back and talked to the girl that he was in a relationship with. The next time I saw him, he was furious with me. 
who are you to judge me and just all these things and I told him that night um, long before it was an issue I told him if you repent I will joyfully stand with you in your wedding we are all forgiven sinners but if you do not I felt before the Lord now someday at the judgment seat of Christ the Lord will tell me whether or not I was right but I felt before the Lord that I could not stand as a witness before God and before an audience giving witness to his covenant when he was currently with his lifestyle spitting in the face of Jesus Christ, my Savior, and the one that he professed as Savior as well. And so I told him, I can't do it. And I drew my line in the sand. I've been raised in a family at this point that had taught that family is more important than sin. And when sin is present, you just sweep it under the rug. You feel... You feel uh, bad for the person, uh, maybe they can't help it, um, whatever, right? But that's the way I was taught to deal with sin. And then I realized that God's standard is different than that. And and I told them, um, I, I cannot. Um, at, at one, there was one person in my family that searched the scriptures and ended up standing with me. The rest of them, at one point or another, were furious with me. Uh, one person told me what I was doing was worse than what he was doing because I was the one ripping the family apart. Um, these things are pretty practical, aren't they? Thanksgiving is a different experience when you live out what Jesus Christ is talking about right here. When you stand with Christ, he told us that he's the why and the road. And if you go with him, that he's going to separate mother and daughter and father and son. And he's going to do, he's going to do these things. Not everybody is going to go with Christ. Now, I'll just quickly but joyfully finish that story. Um, when I fell in love with serving the Lord when I was 15 years old, I prayed at that point, even in my lack of knowledge, I prayed that each member of my family would love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And um, since that time, uh, one by one, they have all bent their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and they're all in one fashion or another, including the one that I stood against, they're all pressing on for the Lord Jesus Christ today in their own way. Now, we're far from a perfect family, you know, but the Lord did use that and the misery of it and the difficulty of it and all of that. Now, all I'm trying to do is just flesh out exactly what Jesus Christ says. If it was selfish for Peter to watch this and then say, well, what about us? What are we going to get? If that was selfish, the Lord should have told him it was selfish. He didn't say, Lord, he didn't say, Peter, that's selfish. He said, Peter, it's going to be so worth it. You're going to get a hundredfold back on your investment. Anything you do for me, anything you leave for me, any stand that you're asked to take for me, it's going to be so worth it. And so I think that concept is so essential to a proper understanding of the judgment seat of Christ. In Hebrews 6, it says this, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in honor, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Again, the idea is just that he will not, he will not forget. I don't know what the Lord is going to call you to do, but whatever he calls you to do, it's worth it, right? Whatever he calls you to do, it's going to be worth it. Okay, now that leads us right into misconception number three. And this is our last misconception, and it fits hand in hand with what we've just been saying. Misconception number three, I think this is probably the biggest one, is this, that it is selfish to think of rewards as a good motivation to serve the living God. I think a lot of Christians hold this, and I don't think the scripture bears this out at all. Again, the misconception is this, that it is selfish to think of reward as a good motivation to serve the Lord. Now, I would be quick to say it's not the preeminent 
motivation, right? It's not my first and foremost motivation for serving the Lord. But I would just put it this way. If it is selfish to think of reward as a good motivation to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord Jesus was a bad teacher. I hope that that's not too blunt. He constantly, we'll see this tomorrow in the Family Bible Hour in the will of our great God. He constantly held up before his followers the idea of reward. If he did not want that to be a part of the thinking of his followers, that's bad teaching. You read through this passage after passage after passage, and you come to the conclusion, Jesus Christ, as a wise master teacher, looks at his followers and says, look, here it is. It is not complicated. You live your life for these things, great will be your reward. Make the smart choice, right? So that's the misconception. It is selfish to think of rewards as a good motivation to serve the living God. And I would respond to that this way. Uh, number one, we should only, or sorry, this is what they say. We should only serve out of love. Uh, I've heard people say this as well. Won't we just cast them at his feet anyways? And what they're saying, I think, um, in my experience in conversations, what they're saying is they think of the casting as a one-time casting. In fact, I'd be surprised if, if people in this room are not thinking of it that way right now. A one-time casting. You get your reward, and then you cast it at his feet, and that's that. I don't think the scripture bears that out. Um, let's look at Revelation chapter 4, if you would. I discover these little nuggets in the word, and I get so excited about them, and then I go and I tell my wife, and, and she says, yeah, <laughs> right? Like, she's always thought of it this way. She grew up in an assembly with great teaching, and maybe there are many of you in here that, that are saying that. Well, yeah, of course, it's not a one-time casting, right? But to me, when I discovered this, I thought, wow. Um, Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. All I want you to notice is this is a heavenly worship scene. Verse 9. Whenever. If you want to underline that, put it in your notes, whatever. That is a continual word. Whenever this happens, that happens. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast. That word is continual. They keep casting their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. The idea is this, when you enter into this kind of a scene of heavenly worship, by the way, there are six activities of heaven, not just one. People often think, well, we will just worship, right? You look in, in heaven, in eternity, you know, what does the scripture say? There's six activities of heaven. It's a great study. Whenever um, a follower of God in eternity enters into this kind of a scene of heavenly worship, right? The angels are joining in and then the elders are joining in, right? And so all everyone's joining in together here. The, they take off their crowns and they cast them, which really means to place or to put, right? They put them down before, before the throne. And the whole idea is that nobody wants to compete with Jesus Christ for glory. In this kind of a setting, right? Say you come away from the judgment seat of Christ. One person has 50, one person has 10, 
That is perfectly biblical, right? Not everyone will do well at the judgment seat of Christ. If you have 50, that is going to be an incredible honor given to you by Jesus Christ. You come into this heavenly scene of worship, you don't want to be competing with Christ, right? He's the only one that should get glory. This is the whole concept of the head covering. This is why we wear the head covering in the meetings of the church. Because in, 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 when we're gathered together, he is the only one that's supposed to get glory. And so the man's glory is covered, the woman's glory is covered. It's the whole concept. It's just an eternal setting now. Angels know how to cover. Cherubim, seraphim, they all cover. They protect the glory of God. And so you've got a heavenly worship scene here. And they take off their crowns and they put, they set, they cast before before the throne and then you participate in this heavenly worship and then at that point you take your crown and you bear your crown from what i can tell you bear your crown for all of eternity so many christians are thinking well yeah it'll be great to get that from christ and then we cast it and then that's it right i just that's not what i see in in god's word it's an eternal casting of crowns at the feet of jesus christ so what you do in this life is directly proportionate to what you receive at the judgment seat of Christ. What you receive at the judgment seat of Christ, you will bear your eternal reward. You will bear that for all of eternity unto the glory of Jesus Christ from what I, from what I can see in the scriptures. So that's... Again, this is a response to, won't we just cast them at his feet? The other thing is, at some level, crowns have to be symbolic. It has to be a way of the Lord communicating to us the idea of reward. And I would refer to the crown of rejoicing from Thessalonians. Paul says, you are my crown of rejoicing. So unless Paul is going to throw the Christians at the feet of Jesus Christ, then at some level, that, that idea of reward has to be symbolic in some way, whether it's crowns or... you hear you, If you read enough, you find guys that say all kinds of things, shades of light. You know, and I don't want to go down all those roads of, of guessing or of being you know, hypothetical. Um, I just want to leave it there um, with, what we can, with what we can see. And then finally, um, isn't that selfish to think of his... Um, Think of rewards as a good motivation. And I would finally just say this. It is not selfish to want the approval of Jesus Christ. That is not selfish. In fact, if you think it through, that is the opposite of selfishness. Selfishness is to not care nor desire the approval of Jesus Christ. The opposite of selfishness is, is that verse I've been trying to stress in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, whether present or absent, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. That is the, it's the opposite of selfishness, to be poured out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so many places that we could go to look at this, but I'm going to leave it, because that statement is really what leads us into our ten points that we're going to get through as much as we can of uh, tomorrow during the family Bible hour. So I'll leave you uh, with this final uh, application. Christ often and unapologetically motivated his disciples with the idea of reward. He often and unapologetically motivated his disciples with the idea of reward. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, or vehemence, 
yea, violence I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Father, we just want to commit this to you. Uh, we do pray, Father, that you would help us in our understanding of these things. Lord, you have set out in front of us motivations. Lord, you know our hearts. Lord, I don't know the hearts of everybody in this room, but I do know them well enough to know that the, the vast majority of them, Lord, you know that we love you. Father, you know that we are thankful for your son. Lord Jesus, you know that we love you, that we look forward to the day that we will see you face to face. Father, we just want to thank you for recording these things for our benefit. And we pray, Father, that the proper result, the proper biblical result would be seen in the lives that are here. Father, we, we ask that you would help us to weigh these things the way that you do, to see these things the way that you do, to live our lives the way that you would have us to. Father, when I come to this assembly, I see as an outsider, I see a zealous assembly reaching out in many different ways, longing to be poured out as a drink offering. And we, I rejoice in that, Father. I thank you for that. I praise you for that. Without your grace, none of us would have that kind of a heart at all. We would be selfish. We would be pursuing our own uh, lusts and craving after our own desires and our own agendas. Father, we just give you all the praise and all the credit. And we pray, Father, that having the zeal that this assembly does, that that would increase more and more. Having the love that this assembly does, that they would abound more and more in that. Father, not only is there a corporate assembly here, but there are individuals. And we pray for your application in every individual's life. Father, you know the things that need to go. If it's sin, Lord, please, we pray that sin would be radically dealt with that, the, the way it needs to be dealt with. Father, if it's, if it's things that are earthbound desires, worldly lusts, not things that are wicked, but things that are just a waste of time, Father, please help us just as radically to deal with sins of omission as we do with sins of commission. Father, we have one chance to live for your son, and then we will look into his face and give an account. Lord, I pray that you would move in this group in such a way that they will do better at the judgment seat of Christ than they would have before considering these things. Lord, unless you move amongst us, nothing happens and nothing changes. We just cast ourselves dependently before you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.